Our scripture tonight is found in Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. A couple of weekends ago, my parents and sister were in from Massachusetts visiting. And my sister has two kids, aged three and five. And we took them down to see the lights and the shops and all that good stuff in in downtown Chicago. Now, despite leaving at about 2 p.m. on Saturday afternoon, the Eisenhower was still pretty jam-packed. And we got stuff in, stuck in traffic. And just being happy to be around my sister and uh, my niece and nephew, my mom and dad, it, the traffic didn't seem to bother me. However, um, my, my five-year-old nephew wanted to play the opposite game the whole way down from Elmhurst to Chicago. And if you're a parent with young kids, the opposite, uh, the opposite game get, is, is good for only about 30 seconds. And then afterwards, it just disintegrates. And, and it starts off, you know, pretty pretty sane and and pretty simple. You know, the opposite of girl is boy. The opposite of sun is moon. And then it it morphs into a little bit of craziness and things like the opposite of Chewbacca the Wookiee is Chewbacca the Cookie. And it just gets sillier and and more rational as the trek to the city continues. And we're in traffic about an hour. And uh, we have five kids and five adults crammed into this van and uh, it, it Five kids aged three, three through nine, all gig- giggling and snickering and coming up with more silly or more extreme opposites. What started as a logical game of opposites morphed into this crazy, mind-numbing game that you couldn't even understand if you were an adult. You had to be one of the kids playing this game. I tell you that story, <clears throat> one, so that you can share in, in the uh, travel chaos, but but more importantly, because our passage this evening, if you look real close, contains a lot of opposites. In fact, in some way, you could say that Christmas could really be considered a celebration of divine opposites. The problem comes in when, just like the opposite games my, my kids and my niece and my nephew were playing in the van, God really confounded people with his extreme opposites. And he is still confounding 
people with his seemingly foolish opposites. So tonight I want to pick apart this passage a bit and let those extreme opposites shake loose so that we can better appreciate the Christmas story and also better follow the mastermind behind this holiday of opposites. Our passage starts off with some relatively simple, pretty positive, straightforward opposites. So let's look at the first two pairs of opposites. The first pair of opposites we encounter is light and darkness. In verses 1 and 2, Isaiah prophesies about the coming of a day where there will be no more gloom. And that people in walk, uh, walking in darkness will see a great light. And those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light will dawn. Darkness and light. Very symbolic, very tangible opposites. The service tonight actually plays on these pair of opposites. The natural light given from a candle or a bunch of candles can bring comfort, can set the mood, can dispel fear, and show the way to walk through the darkness. With the advent, the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, God will dispel the spiritual darkness, the murkiness developed from a life disconnected with God and his way of doing things. A murkiness that clouds our hearts and souls. That's why Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world. The next opposite we counter, encounter is distress on one hand and joy on the other. Verses 1 and 3 show us that the day will come when those in distress will be relieved. And their stress will be exchanged for joy. Joy like when you bring in the harvest. Or joy like when you divide the plunder. Or in other words, joy that comes when times of plenty hit. Maybe if Isaiah was prophesying today, he would say, joy like the dot-com era, before the bubble burst. We can relate to this, this, this opposite, can't we? Distress and joy. So many things can bring us distress, especially around the holidays. Relationships, concern for family members, financial hardship, personal difficulty, or for some of us, all of the above. Isaiah is prophesying that one will come who will relieve us from our distress, who will bring us joy spiritually through a right relationship with our Creator. The first two pairs of opposites, light and darkness, distress and joy, are very positive, very easy to understand. But the heart of this, this passage is found in the next pair of opposites. And it's here that we start seeing the wisdom of God in the seemingly foolishness of God. So let's call the next pair of opposites our way of doing things versus God's way of doing things. Let's look together at verses 4 and 5. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressors, 
Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Keep that up there for one second here. There's two words that verse 4 start with. Those two little words, for as, tell us something big. It means the light and darkness thing, the joy and despair phenomena that Isaiah is prophesying about is going to happen because God is operating just like he did in the day of Midian's defeat. So in order to understand Advent, this Advent prophecy, in order to understand how the Messiah is going to enter the world and accomplish God's redemption, his rescue plan for the human race, we have to first understand how God helped the Israelites to overthrow Midian. For as, trust me, this is really relevant. That day, Midian's defeat, is an incredible day in Israel's history. Now, there was a big upset today. I don't know if you caught it. There was much mourning in Green Bay. The Kansas City, lowly Kansas City Chiefs beat the Packers. And this is a huge upset in the football world. Nothing compared to the upset that happened to the Midianites. It's an incredible jaw-dropping reversal of fortune that stuns everybody, including the Israelites. This is how it happened. I'll recap it for you. The Israelites had completely walked away from God in this point in, in uh, Old Testament history. They didn't follow the Old Testament pr- principles that God had set up through Moses. They walked away from faith. They were also incredibly oppressed by the Mil- Midianite military coalition. The Midianite army, along with the Amalekites and other eastern peoples, banded their fighting uh, power capacity together and... and uh, would attack the Israelites. See, the Israelites would plant their fields and tend to their flocks, and just when harvest time would come, the Midianites and their gangs would sweep in and steal the harvest, everything they labored for, and they would steal their flocks. And so the Israelites at this point were distressed. They were living in fear, scraping things together to make a living, completely impoverished by this Midianite coalition. God intervenes. He hears their cry. And even though they walked away from him, he still listens. He's still there. And he chooses this one ordinary average guy named Gideon. Actually, he's less than ordinary average. It says in the Bible that he was the weakest man of the weakest clan. God chooses the weakest of the weak to bring about his redemption. Gideon says, are you sure? And asks for a sign. God says, I am, and gives him a sign. And so Gideon calls all the fighting men of Israel and is able to gather gather 30,000 men. Sounds like a decent number, right? Until you realize that the Midianite coalition forces are 135,000 fighting men. They're outnumbered by 105,000. But God says to Gideon, no, 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 no. If you guys go out and I bless you and you win, you're going to take credit for it. This is what I want you to do. I want you to thin out the crowd. Tell everybody who's afraid to go home. And so God, Gideon does this, and 20,000 soldiers go home. They're left with 10,000 soldiers against 135,000 soldiers. God says, no, 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 no. Too many. Wean the number down again. And he gives them parameters. And so Gideon does this, and 9,700 soldiers go home. Gideon is left 
with 300 soldiers, and he is scared. In fact, he asks God for a sign. God gives, gives him the sign. He asks God for another sign. God gives him another sign. He doesn't ask God for a third sign, but he wants to. God gives him a third sign anyways. Finally, Gideon gets enough trust, and he splits up the 300 men into uh, three groups, 100 men each, okay? 300 against 135,000. Foolish. At Gideon's sign, uh, sorry, they they, uh, gather around the camp. Each man has a torch with a clay jar over it and a trumpet. And at Gideon's sign, they smash their pots, lift high their torches, and blow their trumpets. It's the middle of the night. God causes chaos to hit the enemy camp, and they think they're surrounded, and they panic. And they begin fighting each other and killing each other. And the Israelites just hold their position. Eventually, the army fled, and the 300 men pursue them. It was an incredible, unimaginable upset. There is no way 300 men could win a battle against 135,000. There's no way. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. But God often uses foolish odds, often uses weakness or seeming weakness to uproot and shame the wise and the powerful. And that day, God rescued Israel. They would no longer be enslaved. Their distress was lifted. Their joy restored. Their freedom regained. Isaiah says, for as. That's how it will be with the coming of the Messiah. Just as the Midianians were defeated, so will God break the chains of sin and lift the bondage of our human frailty, our selfishness, our greed, our lust, our rage, and all the other outworkings of human nature that destroy life. The normal ways of getting things accomplished by force and coercion and ego and war and violence will cease. A new way of doing things will be ushered in, a new kingdom. God's kingdom will supplant the current one. And the weakness, strength, foolishness, wise, opposites that we find In the day of Midian, we find at work in our Christmas story. For unto us, a great warrior is born? Nope, it doesn't say that. For unto us, a political leader will arise like never seen before? Not quite. For unto us, a wealthy, powerful king will come forth? Not the way it happened. For unto us, a child is born. What? A child? A baby. A helpless, completely dependent baby. A baby born to an oppressed people, to an engaged couple not yet married, who happen to be traveling pretty far from home and are left without a place to go and to deliver the baby. No room, no crib, a feeding trough in the great outdoors. That's God's plan. And who does God announce his entrance into 
creation to first? Kings. Nope. Priests. Nope. Political or military leaders. Nope. Shepherds. That's God's rescue plan. His redemption for the human race comes through an unwed, displaced teenage mother's baby. Now, if I had done something like that, my friends and my family would say, man, you really blew it. It seems so foolish. But this is what God does. Why? Why does God do things in crazy, unintelligible, opposite fashion, completely different than we would, completely different than any of our leaders, any of our society would set things up? Why? The answer is really simple. Love. God has an undying, insatiable love for his creation. God purposely chooses the opposite of everything strong and successful and esteemed because he has a passionate love for everyone, no matter how strong or not, successful or not, esteemed or not, they are. God is passionate in his love for us, you and I and every person on the planet. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how much you weigh or how much money you make or what language you speak. It doesn't matter how selfish or sinful or unloving you are. God loves you. God loves us. He doesn't see or judge based on the external values or wisdom of our society, our culture. He ultimately is concerned about our hearts in our personhood. And much to the dismay of Mary and Joseph's family, that's how God works. God went through great lengths to show us that no one, no one is out of reach of God's love and God's rescue plan. Isaiah says, Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. You have increased their joy. And that tiny little baby would grow up to show us God. In his teachings, in the way he lived, Jesus shows us God's grace, God's truth, God's values, God's way of doing things. That baby would then go on to get the final victory, but not by annihilating his enemies, not by oppression or power or coercion or violence, but by suffering, by sacrifice, and by the giving of his life for ours. Because of Jesus, we no longer have to be enslaved to our desires. We don't have to be enslaved to anger or lust or greed or materialism or people-pleasing or any other sin that trips us up and weighs us down. For the power of sin and death has been broken by the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. That is the hope of Christmas. That is what the light from these candles symbolize. Jesus is the answer to our darkness. Jesus is the answer to our despair. It's interesting, in Luke's account of the Christmas story, he mentions the fact that Jesus is born in a manger, a feeding trough, three times. Now, the Christmas story is very short, and it only takes up a few paragraphs, and details are used very, very sparingly. Maybe it's coincidence, or maybe God is even using this detail 
to communicate God's purpose. What is a feeding trough? A feeding trough provides the nourishment and the life-giving contents to those who come to it. So here, the Savior of the world is placed in a feeding trough in a city that's called the Bethlehem, the house of bread or the city of bread. Jesus would later go on to say, I am the bread of life. And at the Last Supper, he would say, this bread is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In Jesus' life, he would miraculously feed thousands physically. And in his death, he nourishes the spirit and soul of anyone who is hungry and thirsty for God. This Christmas, you and I will most likely get a bunch of nice presents. Some of us may even get some pretty expensive gifts. But the one thing I can tell you for sure is that nothing we unwrap, no gift we get will satisfy our deepest longings. Sometimes in our own wisdom, we think if we can just get enough stuff, just get enough money, friends, success, status, it'll be enough. We don't realize that the only thing that will ever satisfy us is the one free gift that has been right before us all along gift of the baby Jesus. May the divine opposites of Christmas cause us to unwrap the gift of Jesus this season. What do I mean by that? Unwrapping the gift of Jesus can happen in two ways. For those of us tonight who have never practically yielded our way of doing things to the Father, to God's way of doing things, then to unwrap the gift of Jesus means to open yourself up to and receive God's rescue. To embrace Jesus as your new leader, your new teacher, your new role model by receiving his forgiveness and following his ways. If you're already a Christian, the other way you can unwrap the gift of, Christ, of Jesus this Christmas is by realizing all the ways that you are still largely caught up in an image, an outward appearance way of life where ego and looks and the other values of society matter more than God's values. To unwrap that gift means to ask God and commit to asking God to train your mind to recognize and react to the lost, to the least, to the forgotten, to the hurting, to the weary, to the opposites of the successful, the strong, the put-togethers. You can unwrap the gift of Jesus by pledging yourself to be a light-bearer, bringing darkness to people's gloom, bringing joy to people's despair, bringing hope to people's misery. For unto us... A child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father.